So this morning, as we begin our journey through Advent, I would remind us that it is a time of longing, of watching, of waiting. Uh, The season of Advent is all about preparation and anticipation. And so we lean into this season, a season that is marked with with hope and longing. And as you can tell, our, our theme this year for this Advent season is the world is about to turn which is a refrain from the Advent hymn, The Canticle of the Turning, part of which we heard and sung following the lighting of the Advent candles just a moment ago. And the text from that phrase, excuse me, the text from that hymn is a paraphrase of the Magnificat that was sung by Mary when she discovers that she is pregnant with the Christ child. And as you probably heard, the, the hymn uses this Irish folk song, as an upbeat and lively setting to Mary's song. It's filled with hope, filled with determination. And one of the things that Mary says in that song, in the Magnificat, surely from now on all generations, she says, will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, isn't it true that the stories and the scriptures and the traditions of Christmas have in many ways been passed down to us through the generations. Not just the stories from the Bible, but also I want you to think this morning of some of your favorite family traditions. Those traditions that are so special this time of year and to remember where they came from and how they continue to live on year in and year out. You see, this sacred season reminds us that the work of God is always unfolding, both in us but also through us, that our, that our lives, our histories, our actions are all interconnected. They're all woven together in those that have come before us, but also with those that will come after us. So this morning, we're going to look at two texts. The first is from the prophet Isaiah who will talk to us about two opposing groups, two opposing identities that are coming together. And in that coming together, they decide that they are going to do things differently than they've done in the past. That up to this point, they had been uh, always arguing, always fighting. And so instead of the ways of the past, ways of war, they want to learn a new way. And so they transform their weapons into gardening tools. The second text is from Matthew's Gospel, the first of the four Gospels, the very beginning of the story. And he begins with the claim that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son, we are told, of David. Now, you'll be glad to know that we are reading this morning a very condensed version, because if you've ever read all 17 verses, you know that there's a whole lot of names, there's a whole lot of begetting unto another, and so we are shortening it a little bit, tracing the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. So as you hear this condensed version of Jesus' family tree, we're going to talk a little bit about why that's important and what it might mean for us today. There are two scriptures today. The first is from Isaiah, the second chapter, verses 1 through 5. Here begins the reading. 
In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The second scripture is an adaptation of Matthew's first chapter, verses 1 through 17. And as Russ said, I'm glad we're having the adaptation, otherwise I would be reading 52 names over and over again. <laughs> Here begins the reading. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. From Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, from Obed, whose mother was Ruth, to kings David and Solomon, from the time of the exile to Joseph, the husband of Mary, and the mother of Jesus. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the de deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you would like to hear the full reading of all 17 verses, Eldon will be outside after the service. <laughs> would love to read all of those Hebrew names for you this morning. So Matthew begins his story, the life and the ministry, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. One of the most compelling, I would argue, one of the most compelling stories in the history of the world. But he begins this incredible story in a rather strange fashion with a lengthy recital of the names of the ancestors of Jesus. Now again, we just read a small portion of that because I knew that if we were to read all 17 verses, all 52 names, all 40 generations, that at some point your eyes would start to roll back in your head or your heads would begin to nod or you'd start writing your Christmas wish list in order to stay fully present in the reading. That being said, if you have trouble sleeping tonight, I would encourage you uh, to pull out your Bible and start reading through the first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew. That will help, I'm sure. I think we could all admit that that is a rather curious, rather interesting way to start this story. After all, this is a story of an incredible suspense, emotional depth, and as any good storyteller will tell you, there's always got to be a gripping beginning. Think of your favorite book. 
My guess is that probably within the first page or two, maybe even the first paragraph, there is something that captures your attention, draws you into the story. (laughs) But this is not that. After all, after all, why would Matthew begin his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus? Now, I would encourage us to remember that we are not the intended audience of this particular book. That this particular book, along with all of the other books in the Bible, were written for a specific person, a specific people in mind, a specific audience. And Matthew knew his audience at the time, those first readers, that original audience. And more than any other gospel, he was writing to a Jewish audience. Now, these people at this point in their lives, they were Jewish by heritage, but now they were Christian by conviction. They were no longer in the synagogue, but yet still trying to figure out how to be church. They were, in a sense, sort of living with a foot in two different worlds. They were in this liminal space. Their their community was built on the foundation of Israel, but yet now more and more the doors and the windows were being opened to all people, even the Gentiles. In essence, they were trying to balance the demands of the old with the challenges of the new. They were trying to figure out how to, how to weave their newfound trust and faith in Jesus into the well-worn cloth of their Judaism. They were trying to figure out how to blend these two traditions, these true families together came across a comedian not too long ago who says that this blending, this joining together of families and traditions is the hardest part about being married. And she said, therefore, it is crucial to ask your fi- fiancé, 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 before you get married, it's important to ask your fiancé before you get married about their family traditions, in particular about the holidays. She says, because there are essentially two different ways of enjoying the holidays, two different ways that families do this. One is those that like to wake up on holidays gently, slowly, sip on mimosas. And then there are those that like to get up early and run turkey trots. How many people know exactly what I'm talking about? And if you are not careful, if you do not ask ahead of time, you may find out that you have signed up for a lifetime of turkey trots and jingle jogs if you are not careful. Just to see of hands, how many of you married into a turkey trot family this morning? Some of you, yes, I see my wife raising her hand. We know exactly what that is. You see, Matthew's original readers, unlike us modern ones, would not have found that genealogy of Jesus to be dull reading at all. In fact, just the opposite. They would have been engaged. They would have been leaning forward, interested in this family tree because they would see in in this family tree uh, familiar names from the Jewish scriptures. They would be drawn in. It would be sort of like if you were to to go to your parents' or grandparents' house and, and up in the attic come across an old family Bible. And began flipping through and noticing, noticing all of the the births and the deaths, the marriages, the baptisms of all those people in your family history. 
but it was even more than that. Now, you've probably heard me say that numbers are an important part in Judaism, so much so that, that words were understood not just to what they referred to, but also for their numerical value. Now, let me see if I can explain this in a way that even I can understand, and I'll do so in English. So in English, A is the first letter of the alphabet, so that letter has a numerical value of one. B is the second letter, so it has a numerical value of two. C is the third letter, three, so on. So the word cab, for instance, C-A-B, would have a numerical value of six, right? You've got... No, six. Yes, six. You threw me off. You threw me off back there. The choir, they heard the sermon at the first time, and they threw me off on purpose, I think. That's what they did. A numerical value of six. Now, we are told at the very beginning of the book that Jesus is the son of David. Now, in Hebrew, the word David has three letters, D, V, D to Englishize those. There are no vowels in Hebrew. And D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it has a numerical value of four. V is the sixth. So it has a numerical value of six. D is the fourth. So it has a numerical value of four. Add all those together and what do we have? Fourteen. You guys are sharp this morning. Now why is that important? Because as Eldon pointed out, and again, in this brutal way to begin this anthology, this genealogy, is that they are grouped together into groups of 14. Remember, the Jewish audience would have been long waiting for the son of David to appear, to, to save them, and everyone knew that David's name had a numerical value of 14. And so when Matthew points out, as Eldon read, when all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The Jewish Christian audience would have known from this genealogy that Jesus really is the son of David, the one that they had been waiting for, the one that they had been preparing for for generations. But even deeper than that, they would have read this genealogy as a list. But more than a list, but an anthology of stories with each name triggering an outpouring of emotion. They would have heard Abraham was the father of Isaac, and immediately they would, have, they would have thought of that story of Abraham that heard that horrible command, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. They would have heard Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and they would have remembered Solomon's wealth and his wisdom as well as Rehoboam's military ambition, his stubbornness, and his troubled reign as king. And on and on they would go, pausing after every name to remember the stories, the stories of, of Jacob who took advantage of his poor father's eyesight in order to steal his brother's birthright. They would have heard the story of Boaz and Jesse and David who was, has this wonderful, horrible king. He was both adored and admonished. And they would see there the name of those women. Now, it's important for us to remember that in that day and time, 
women were not included in genealogies like this. But yet Matthew is intent and makes sure that he includes the names of the women in the story of Jesus. People like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. Now, friends, there is a whole month of Sundays in the stories of those women, many of them with somewhat sordid stories. And so to a Jewish audience, including those women, would have pointed to the fact that this, this was a redemption story. So now... You're all sitting there thinking, Russ, this is very interesting to a Bible nerd like you, and it is, but you're also probably thinking, what does this have to do with us, and what does it have to do with Advent? Well, I'm glad you asked, because in that long list of names, there are stories of trauma, but also stories of triumph of those people that came before. In each Each name holds a story, and their story gives way to Christ's story. And when you zoom in in each one, you may not be able to see how each character propels the story forward, but when you zoom out, you can see how each story is woven together into a larger tapestry. And I'm willing to bet that when you look at your family history, you also see their stories of triumph, but maybe also stories of trauma. Stories that you are proud to tell, but maybe also stories that are shaded with a sense of shame, sadness, maybe even embarrassment. In my family, there's an old story that has been passed down from generation to generation of a terrible feud that lasted for over 30 years. Now, this was not the Hatfields and the McCoys because the people that were feuding in this story were brothers, This was the Petermans versus the Petermans. John versus Abraham, they were brothers in their 70s, and they lived on adjoining farms. And they had been arguing, they had been fighting, they had been feuding for over 30 years. So long that they didn't even remember what they were fighting for in the first place. But they knew that they hated each other. One day, one day, John's barn burns down to the ground, and he is convinced that Abraham was the source of that fire. So the next morning, he goes to Abraham's farm, and he confronts Abraham, and they begin arguing, and they begin fighting to the point where John picks up a rock and bashes his brother in the head, killing him instantly. Now, here's what you need to know about that story, church is that that was over 130 years ago. And yet, that caused a rift, a split in my family that continues to this day. There is a whole branch of the Peterman family that lives on the East Coast that we know nothing about. And the truth is, we don't even know if we were descended from John or from Abraham. We just know that there's this whole side of the family that we aren't connected with. So as I hear that story, I wonder, I wonder how that has shaped my family. When someone dies in the church and I meet with the family to plan the funeral, one of the first things that I do is I ask them, tell me some of the stories 
Tell me some of the stories of that person, how they shaped you, what you will remember most. What is your most favorite memory of that person? And they began to tell me. Sometimes those stories are healing and helpful and sometimes they are sad, but all of them important. There is a Native American philosophy that comes from the Iroquois indigenous people known as the seventh generation principle. And that principle suggests that seven generations after us will be infected, be affected by the current actions and decisions that we make today. That the choices that we make today will be felt by those that will come after us for seven generations. Just as we today are impacted by the choices and the decisions that were made seven generations before us. This concept, this idea, this philosophy has become important to environmental advocates that remind us that the footprints that we leave on the earth today will be impacted and felt seven generations later. Over the next several weeks, we will hear stories of Mary and Joseph, of the shepherds and the magi. We'll hear stories of Elizabeth and John. But we pause this morning to remember that this is also the story of Ruth, of Jesse and David, of Isaiah. And that all of those threads over the centuries, they are woven together into the story of God's unconventional inbreaking. And that Christmas story, that Christmas story is our story as well, that we all have a part to play in the unfolding story that proclaims of the Advent promises of hope and peace joy and love. Advent reminds us that we live in the in-between, between the already and the not yet. And so each December we enter into this season of waiting, of expecting, of, of longing, of hoping, of believing, of believing that tomorrow can be better than today. You see, as people of faith, we have to recognize that we may not be able to change the past, but we can work on the future together. That we can all do what we can to let love and grace shape every action that we take, both as a congregation, but also as individuals. As followers of Jesus, we must always be willing to work towards healing and grace while allowing God's hope to bless us in that work. You see, church, Advent is the season in which we remind ourselves that tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. That this season, the season of already and not yet, that God is doing a new thing in us and through us in the world. Our work, our call during the sacred season is to be open to God's nudging, to God's movement in our lives, to recognize that the actions that we take today will be impacted and felt by those seven generations beyond us. And so may God bless us, keep us, as we work together to bring the wholeness that God intends for this world.